The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, this is Jacob Schultz with a Lawfare episode from the archive for September 18th, 2021. There's been a lot in the news recently about drone strikes, particularly with news breaking about significant civilian casualties resulting from U.S. drone strikes in Afghanistan. So this week, I picked an episode from the archive in which Benjamin Wittes, Lawfare's editor-in-chief, gave a talk in 2013 at the Palace of Westminster on whether drones are becoming the new Guantanamo. Hello, and welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Wells Bennett. In this episode, Benjamin Wittes, my colleague here at Brookings and Lawfare's editor-in-chief, speaks at Britain's House of Commons on April 24th during an event organized by the Henry Jackson Society. The question under discussion is, are drones the new Guantanamo? Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, with Big Ben just about to strike uh, 6 p.m. Um, can I welcome, welcome you to this Henry Jackson Society uh, event? Uh, before I um, hand over to our guest speaker, uh, this evening, I'd first of all like to introduce Robin Simcox, who is the research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, to say a few words, and then I will uh, give a brief introduction before going over uh, to uh, our speaker tonight. Robin. Thank you. Um, I, will, I will keep this exceptionally brief. Um, I work on the uh, Al Qaeda and Associated Movements and, and Counterterrorism Project at the Henry Jackson Society, and it's a, re- it's a really fantastic pleasure to be able to. Uh, introduce this talk today. Um, the uh, the website that, that Benjamin co-founded, uh, the Lawfare the Lawfare blog, is um, one of the the leading resources for somebody like me who works with these uh, works in this field every day. It's a uh, it's a, a truly fantastic resource. The, the banner of the website is uh, hard national security choices. And that epitomises the work it does. It does really perfectly. The uh, the concerns that some of the uh, that lawfare looks at, the um, some of the, the key out the key areas of our time really in balancing liberty and security, be it from Guantanamo Bay to drones to uh, detention to rendition to enhanced interrogation, um, some of which I'm, I'm sure will come up today. Uh, I think this is the, the, the leading website in, in analysis of those issues, and these are issues which have, have divided two administrations, they've, they've straddled over two administrations, and the reality is there's, there's no easy answers to some of these issues. Um, I think those who, who say there are probably haven't understood the question properly. 
Um, so lawfare, I, I must stress, look, is the, the value of this is it looks at it from a genuinely bipartisan, neutral way at a time when uh, national security, the national security debate generally um, has become increasingly politicised. As someone who works in this field, it's something I uh, especially appreciate. So I just want to make that short pitch before Ben talks about it, because it's a lot easier for me to praise his work. I'm sure he's too modest to do so himself. So for those of you who don't read it, uh, please do. And with that, I'll pass over to you. Rowan, thank you very much indeed. Well, it's a very great pleasure to welcome our guest speaker, Benjamin Witters, uh, today, who is a senior fellow in governance, st governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He co-founded and is the editor-in-chief of the Lawfare blog, which is devoted to sober and serious discussion of the hard national security choices and is a member of the Hoover Institution's Task Force on National Security and Law. Between 1997 and 2006, he served as an editorial writer uh, for the Washington Post, specializing in legal affairs. He is author of Detention and Denial, the case for Candor after Guantanamo, uh, which was published in November 2011, and co-editor of Constitution 3.0, Freedom and Technological Change, published in December 2011, and editor of Campaign 2012, 12 Independent Ideas for Improving American Public Policy, that was published by the Brookings Institution Press in May last year, and he is also writing a book on data and technology proliferation and the implications for security, and uh, delighted uh, that uh, uh, Benjamin is here this evening uh, to uh, talk about uh, our drones, the new Guantanamo. Uh, after his uh, presentation, uh, I hope there will be an opportunity to take any questions that you may have. Over to you. Thank you, and, and, and thank you very much, Robin, for those kind words. I, uh, you know, when we started Lawfare, I guess two and a half years ago, it really was a sort of a lark project by three of us that we, we, we never dreamt that we were uh, doing anything more than creating a, a little site for uh, sort of incidental writing that the three of us were doing, and uh, it's, it's very moving, actually, to hear somebody talk about it in, in the language that you just did. Um, I, um, the, the question that gives rise to the title of, of, of this discussion is one actually that my colleague Ken Anderson um, posed uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration uh, in a very prescient uh, essay that he wrote actually for a book that, that I was editing, um, and I asked him to, to give some thought to the subject of targeted killing, um, which he uh, did, and he wrote an essay in which he pointed out that, that the same forces that had made U.S. detention policy uh, so uh, delegitimized that it became a very problematic tool of counterterrorism. We're starting to think about uh, the tool that had replaced it, uh, essentially, as a, as the sort of major instrument. Uh, this is oversimplifying because there wasn't one major instrument then, and there isn't one major instrument now. But uh, it is true that that in the period 2009, 2010 the era in which we were kind of capturing large numbers of enemy fighters um, and trying to figure out what to do with them and 
using Guantanamo and other sites as a kind of warehouse for them, had by that time sort of ended, and that population was declining rather rapidly, at least at Guantanamo. And what was striking was that what was taking place instead was increasingly ramped up in the early years of the Obama administration, was targeted killings with standoff weapons platforms, particularly unmanned aerial vehicles, armed predators, and subsequently reapers. And Ken asked this question sitting at a cafe, and then sort of we've since written about it a little bit, just, you know, is this the new Guantanamo? And so I think it's actually a very interesting question that has a lot of interesting dimensions. And so I want to sort of briefly lay them out a little bit and then have as much time as possible, you know, to deal with, take it in whatever direction you all want to take it in and sort of leave as much possible room for discussion as I can. So the first thing to say about this question is that, of course, the old Guantanamo is not gone. It's just that everybody's gotten bored of it. And the same problem that gave rise to Guantanamo in the first place, which is that there's a certain group of people that you capture that it's unacceptable from a security standpoint to let go, that nobody wants to take if you did want to let them go, and that you also can't realistically bring to criminal trial and that you were not holding under the criminal law to begin with but under the laws of war. That problem still remains, at least for a certain group of people, both in Afghanistan, where the likely result is that those people will be let go, and in Guantanamo for a certain group of people where that outcome is a little bit more unthinkable. That problem remains. The world seems less outraged about it than it was a few years ago, and so there isn't the sort of day-to-day pressure on it that there was only relatively recently. Now, why that is is actually a complicated and interesting head-scratcher of a question, to be honest, which we can talk about. But I think one of the reasons, and perhaps the major reason, is that the locus of U.S. counterterrorism policy has to some degree shifted, a considerable degree shifted, to kinetic strikes using scary flying robots. And there is something, for somewhat the same reason that five, seven years ago Guantanamo was irresistible, these scary flying robots that kill people and whose pilots are in Nevada are also irresistible. So let me start with what links these two issues together. And to some degree this is obvious, but I want to put it out on the table anyway. What made Guantanamo irresistible was that it was a robust American, and it's critical that it's American, counterterrorism exertion of power that mingles authorities that people think of as law enforcement authorities with authorities that the U.S. government asserts are foreign policy and or military authorities. There is a great discrepancy 
in transatlantic and, for that matter, U.S. versus a lot of the rest of the world's views of the scope of those military authorities. And the result is that the U.S., in a sustained sort of way, is taking action under the rubric of conflict that the rest of the world does not accept under the rubric of conflict. This creates a long-term irritant that may be, to some degree, irresolvable, complicating it further in the case of Guantanamo is that approximately, depending on when you poll it, between 30 and 45 percent of the American population agrees with the rest of the world. So there's a very substantial, mobilized minority of people, which included in the last, not the last election, but the election before that, both the Republican and the Democratic nominee for presidents, right, who are, to one degree or another, deeply embarrassed by the discrepancy and want to resolve it by, you know, to one degree or another, bringing the United States into the ambit of the way the rest of the world thinks about this. McCain has certainly backed off that position, and Obama has also, in material respects, backed off that position, though perhaps not as aggressively as, more consequentially, but less intellectually aggressively than McCain has, as was very evident this week, by the way, when McCain demanded that the marathon, surviving marathon bombing suspect be held in a status equivalent to that of the people at Guantanamo. So if you think about the drones debate in this context, it is now also a robust exercise of American counterterrorism authority, counterterrorism force. It's a sort of muscular exercise that the world thinks, you know, regards with some degree, varying degrees of disrepute. The United States considers it lawful conduct under the laws of war in the context of an armed struggle that it regards itself as fighting, and a lot of people in the rest of the world do not regard as legitimately an armed conflict of the sort that you would use, you know, this sort of weapon. And, oh, by the way, some significant minority of the United States population agrees with the rest of the world, including now, fascinatingly and for the first time, and this is, I think, a very consequential development, a significant element of the conservative movement. And this is new, it is fresh, and if you think about what happened over the last five years, as I do, which is, you know, there was a core of what the Bush administration was doing that the left had to accommodate itself to, and Barack Obama had to accommodate himself to when he became president, and there developed out of that a very strong bipartisan consensus about certain types of counterterrorism authorities. For the first time now, you are seeing that really fray, not merely because it has always had a left dissent, but now because it has a libertarian right dissent, too. And I think the Rand Paul filibuster, I don't know how much attention that got in Britain, but, you know, Rand Paul, who's the sort of libertarian senator from Kentucky, filibustered in our most peculiar parliamentary procedure the nomination of the new CIA director for 13 hours. He talked without stopping for 13 hours in order to protest the possibility 
that you might have a domestic drone strike. Mind you, there is no plausible scenario in which there would be a domestic drone strike. But that gives you an idea of the degree to which this bipartisan consensus has begun to fray. Now, I think you can start with, so this poses a number of sort of head-scratching problems. And the first of which is, why drones? You know, of all the things that the United States does, a drone is actually just a weapon. You know, it's not really fundamentally different from any other weapon systems. We've conducted airstrikes for, you know, many decades. You know, the idea that the instrument that you may use to conduct the airstrike does not have a pilot on board isn't fundamentally, you know, a great challenge to the nature of the exercise of authority or power. And some of us start from a very different, you know, place, which is to say that you can make an argument, and I would make an argument, that the drone, which the fundamental difference between it and other standoff weapons platforms is that it allows the weapon itself to surveil the target for long periods of time, and thus wait until the optimal moment to hit the target such that you minimize the casualties to those around the target, you maximize confidence in the identity of the target. You can make a pretty good argument that this is actually a very dramatic step toward what the global human rights community has been asking for for 100 years, you know, which is greater discrimination in targeting, greater, you know, greater precision, greater focus. And so you ask, well, why, having gotten this close, you know, certainly wouldn't argue that there aren't civilian casualties, and I certainly wouldn't argue that this targeting is perfectly precise. But having gotten, it certainly is much better than anything else we've dealt with in the past. And having gotten this close, why do we now have this sudden legitimacy crisis about the use of this particular weapon? We don't have the same degree of legitimacy crisis about, for example, special forces operations, which are designed to do the same thing, which is to say, go in and get an individual. But the one weapon that actually, by design, minimizes these problems to some degree has become sort of wildly controversial, both domestically and abroad. So I want to pose, I think, three reasons why that may be the case, all of them quite tentative, frankly. I'm still sort of thinking about it. The first is just the big, scary robots thing. I think there's a great degree of mystification associated with the technology. Big, scary flying robots that kill people. This is a subject, you know, it's a longstanding subject in science fiction. And there is a real fear of the technology that is mapped onto the policy and a deep-seated confusion of the policy and the platform. So I guess the first point that I want to kind of emphasize is it's really important to separate the policy from the platform. And when you conflate them, to justify conflating them. Figure out what it is about the policy 
that you think is inherent to the platform, if that's what you're arguing. Um, the second point um, is that I think it is probable, and this is the big link to Guantanamo, that what is what binds the anxiety about drones together is just a fear of aggressive U.S. counterterrorism action outside of the context of conventional law enforcement. And this, what's, the second thing that's being mapped onto this policy is not, again, not about drones. It's about U.S. projections of force under the auspices of counterterrorism that are not conventional law enforcement projections. Um, and then the third aspect, which um, I think this is actually the most challenging and the most difficult, um, and I think the one that the United States is going to have to contend with the most, it's going to be most wrenching for the U.S. to contend with, is the question of secrecy. Um, the, for a, a series of, I think, very good reasons as an initial matter, um, and they are put very briefly that the government of Pakistan is much more willing to consent privately, at least historically, to strikes on its territory than it is to consent either publicly or to consent at all if the United States acknowledges the strikes. Um, and that the government of Yemen is positively eager for certain strikes to take place as long as they can take credit for them themselves. Um, and for those reasons, which are fundamentally diplomatic um, concerns, um, there is a linkage between the consent of the host government and the secrecy of the program. And this means that it's extremely difficult for the United States to defend or talk about the program, both domestically and internationally. Um, this is a huge challenge that, by the way, actually initially was true of Guantanamo, too. Remember that it wasn't uh, until 2005, 2006, I believe, maybe later, that the names of the Guantanamo detainees were systematically released. Um, and so there's a, there, there was an initial real secrecy problem with detention policy, too. Um, and, you know, within the U.S. government, there's a very deep ongoing debate about how much you can and can't make public about this program. And there's been a series of speeches starting in 2010 um, by relatively senior, sometimes very senior uh, government lawyers that have talked about aspects of the program. I, I think it is safe to say that they have, the more they have talked, the more the demand the increased supply has also increased demand. And the more the United States relies on this technique, uh, the greater the demand for more comprehensive information is going to be. Um, so I'm going to actually stop there and open it up. But I, I think the, the, the broad point is that I do think that there is, as there was with Guantanamo, a critical mass that is being reached of a sort of legitimacy crisis for this policy. Given the importance of the policy, uh, particularly as the United States draws down troops in Afghanistan, I think it's uh, sort of essential that we figure out how to talk about it in a way that's um, neither apologetic uh, nor um, uh, 
neither apologetic nor too permissive or too bombastic. And I think that's going to be a real challenge going forward. One final thought before I really shut up. You know, one of the fundamental problems that the United States faces, and this is actually true, one of the other things that binds the Guantanamo discussion to the drones discussion, is that every tactic can't be illegal. And, you know, there are these ungoverned spaces of the world where, that have a magnetic quality to terrorist groups. And they congregate there precisely because they operate as safe havens. There are several ways to get to them there, right? One is by sending large numbers of troops. So this is what gave rise to the Guantanamo problem. You send large numbers of troops into Afghanistan. In mass, these groups flee across the Pakistani border. Pakistani army scoops up a very large number of them, turns them over to us in kind of an indiscriminate fashion, thus Guantanamo. So that's one way. And that, of course, developed significant legal policy, diplomatic problems. Second possibility is to follow them into Pakistan, which you can't do with boots, right? But you can do with drones. And now that is developing a significant set of legitimacy problems. And so my final thought is that there's a, it cannot be that the only tactic that is lawful, the only tactic that is acceptable from a human rights point of view, and the only tactic that the world will tolerate in the long run the United States using, is the one tactic that cannot reach people in ungoverned areas, which is the use of law enforcement that in places that the writs of courts don't in fact run. That's not to say law enforcement has no role in those situations, but it's never going to be able to be the leading role that it is in, say, Boston or here. So I'll stop there, and whichever direction you guys want to take it, I'd love to chat. Thank you very much indeed. It's remiss of me. I should have introduced myself. I'm Henry Smith. I'm a member of Parliament, and a very warm welcome to you and to everybody to the Palace of Westminster this evening. So if we could take some questions. Can I ask that when asking your question, if you could say your name and if you represent an organization or a body or so forth. I'll go to you first, Davis, and then back to the room. Davis Lynn from the Henry Jackson Society, and sorry for taking this opportunity. Can I just prompt you, just briefly before we go into the Q&A, I think everything that you've described, if I can put it like that, is in the macro sense of this problem. There is also a micro sense, which is the question of oversight, very specifically. Can you just say a word about the state of that debate and how you see that in terms of the American system? Right. So, you know, broadly speaking, in the American system, targeting is an executive responsibility, and there is, in a formal sense, no analog to, for example, the role that the Israeli Supreme Court plays in Israeli targeted killings. The targeted killings in the United States, or by the United States, because they're not in the United States, take place really under one of two rubrics. One is as conventional targeting judgments by the military in areas in which the military is active. And the second, and those are no different from any other, you know, and 
from any other targeting decision. And the way that oversight is handled is simply through the command structure of the military. The military does have an ongoing oversight relationship with the armed services committees of both houses of Congress. And so there's congressional oversight in that sense. But I think the general way you should think about oversight of targeted killing by the military is that it's really no different from any other targeting by the military, and the oversight mechanisms are essentially the same. Where that is not the case is with respect to the CIA, which, you know, by all accounts has a drones program. And in those cases, those are covert actions, and that is an entirely different legal regime. And that covert actions are, there is a very substantial executive branch oversight mechanism for that, but the chief outside mechanism is the relationship between the intelligence community and the intelligence committees of the Congress, which are briefed in very great detail about covert actions. And so the irony is that the more secretive of the two programs, which is to say the CIA's program, almost certainly gets much greater oversight from the Congress than does the military's, which, you know, we think of as a sort of less covert system, but is actually done under, because it's relatively conventional, it's not, does not have the same degree of oversight. There have been, or outside oversight, there have been a lot of calls in recent months for the statutory creation of some kind of court to oversee drone strikes, particularly against U.S. citizens. I am very skeptical that the executive branch under any administration will sit still for such a suggestion for reasons we can talk about if you want. There's some appetite in Congress for a more robust system, the design of which would be a very complicated proposition. Thank you. Ma'am, you had a question, I believe? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that 
is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once, because the information will get back into the systems. It does it, and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports, and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, 
they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Um, no affiliation. Um, in the future, clearly going to available to many other governments. I believe a lot of governments are buying them already. Now, there will be a great temptation, won't there, to use these weapon systems. Um, oh, in a rather political way, politicians will find themselves targeted. We already see targeted assassinations in Iran, um, motorbikes mainly, but also drone attacks. Um, what will happen then? The second question, what warheads can these creatures harbor? Is anybody going to be able to make a biological warfare warhead, for instance? That would be quite handy in some cases, probably. Um, I'd like to add a fourth um, problem to your three, which obviously are valid. Um, fourth one, I think, is the worry that people have that here is something being carried on by kids, really, because all the pilots are extremely young. They've trained themselves on war games on their on their computers. And is this really safe? Thank you. Um, so these are actually all excellent questions, and all of them could easily fill up an hour of discussion. But let me give you... Um, three very quick answers to, to, to your three points. Um, your last point is very profound and very important. Um, one of the fundamental problems with UAV systems um, is that they're not going to remain confined to governments and militaries. They already are not confined to governments and militaries. I have one. Um, and, um, and um, you know, the amount, the state of Minnesota recently announced, or some people associated with robotics in Minnesota, there's a lot of big robotics industry in Minnesota, that Minnesota now has more high school robotics teams than high school hockey teams. So that gives you an idea where, I mean, we are training an entire generation. Hockey is big in the upper Midwest in the United States, you know, but <laughs> robotics is bigger. Um, and. Um, you know, the, we are training an entire generation of people with a comfort level with um, robotic systems that we are 
you know, in a very early stage of the development of what the consumer side of this sort of thing will look like. Um, and so what I would say is, you know, just as two brothers can buy black powder and some nails and, you know, disrupt the Boston Marathon, and that has reverberations over here when you guys have a marathon, you know, the, you know, you increase the power of the tools that people are going to be using, and you will increase the you know, the ability to do imaginative things that are very scary, and their reverberations around the world. Uh, as to the question of whether you can could arm one of these with a uh, biological weapon, absolutely. Um, I don't mean to be alarmist about it, but I, this is, you know. The distribution of biological agents is actually not a terribly difficult technical problem. And one of the principal domestic uh, civilian uses of drones is going to be in the crop dusting area, where there's just this is a very dangerous area of civil aviation. People, you know, people fly little planes around close to the ground. That's bad. And so if you can get the pilots out of those planes, that's good. And planes that spray things on crops is a good idea. Planes that spray things on people is a less good idea, right? And so if you imagine somebody as capable as Stephen Hatville, who you know, conducted the anthrax attacks in 2001, and imagined him uh, armed you know, using a UAV rather than the US mail as a distribution system, it's a very scary thought. And there's actually no technical reason why you couldn't do it. Um, so just don't talk about that idea too much. <laughs> you just give somebody an idea. Um, as to the question of dis dissemination of, to other militaries, look, it's going to happen. It's already happening. And, the and this is another reason, and, and you know, Ken Anderson has talked about this very eloquently. It's another reason why the United States needs to be very clear about the rules under which it's operating, both because, both because we are demanding permission for certain things and because we are also saying that there are certain things we won't do, right? And when th those, those lists of restraints, the demand for permission and the list of restraints are themselves designed to condition norms. And actually, the president has talked about this very explicitly. And I, I think we need to be very clear, very repetitive, and talk explicitly about what the restrictions are. What are the things we would never do? What is the principle by which we will use a drone over Yemen, but we would never use one over England? Right? There are answers to those questions, but we need to be very explicit about them. Thank you very much. Now I think i go to, is it Paul Beaver from James? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Paul Beaver. I'm a specialist advisor to the Defense Committee in the House of Commons, um, and I'm one of the advisors on our future uh, and land, air, and vehicle inquiry. Um, I also was in the first British predator team uh, in San Diego in 96, so I have a little experience of this. Then you know more than I do. <laughs> well, well, I, I should be asking you questions. And, and a few um, uh, operational sorties after that. Um, I've, I've got two linked questions, if I may. One is, I don't like the term drone. I don't like it either. To me, as a pilot, uh, a drone is a target. You put a drone up and you shoot it down. Um, and it usually has a given course it flies. Um, if, if you're targeting um, remotely piloted air vehicle is probably the best technical description of it. Do you see, and it's a media shorthand, do you see that happening 
and um, uh, in, in the states that there's no way we're going to go back from, from drones. And if I may, just another one is on missile technology control regime, uh, because UAVs that fly more than 300 nautical miles are banned under, under that. We've all got them. Nobody has actually created uh, a mechanism that is going to be taken to any court on this. Do you see the United States wanting to either turn a blind eye completely or to want to see the end of the MTCR? So I, I'm actually ill-positioned to answer that latter question. It's just an issue that I've, I'm, I'm aware of, and I, and I do not have adequate expertise in this specific issue to address. As to the terminology of drones, I, I agree with you, but I've given up. I mean, I, I think it's I, – I mean, there is, you know, there is a bit of feeding the beast every time you say the word drone. You know, you're, you're using a sort of pejorative term that um, – that connotes an absence of human involvement that's actually wrong. Um, it, connotes, um, it connotes something, it, 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 it gives rise to this sort of scary image of the sort of flying robots that are coming to get your mother. Um, and I, I would prefer that there be a better word for it. That said, I'm not sure in the history of the English language that we have a good example of, of a war between a term as simple and elegant as drone and as unwieldy and bureaucratic sounding as unmanned aerial vehicle or remotely piloted aer aerial vehicle or remotely piloted standoff weapon system, you know, and, and that the latter one wins. And so I, I, I think, you know, I think the... Um, I, I don't know what the solution to that problem is. I, I actually completely agree with you, and I, and that said, I have given up, and I use the term drone now. <laughs> um, sir. Sir, please. Um, Anthony Dworkin with the European Council on Foreign Relations Think Tank. Um, so I have a couple of questions, linked questions about the scope of the targeting program. Um, first, um, as you know, the United States um, officials, when they've uh, laid out the justifications for the programs in these speeches um, have tended to emphasize that the use is confined outside battlefield conditions to you know, high-level people who pose a, an imminent threat or a serious threat, um, you know, quite a kind of high threshold to meet, and yet all the evidence we have, whether it's from the American Foundation or the League of Things from the Clash or so on, suggests a rather more sweeping use against you know, compatibly low-level types as they're often described. Do you think, you know, is there a tension there or is this just a difference of interpretation? What's going on? And, and secondly, linked to that, um, again, as you know, the justification that's offered tends to be in the alternative, the legal justification. So it's either within an armed conflict or it's the use of self-defense. Um, but what's never exactly clear is where the boundary between those two is. Um, and I'm just wondering whether going forward that might be one area where the administration does give greater precision, <laughs> and if so, where that boundary would come down. You know, would Yemen, Somalia, <coughs> conflict, what would be the self-defense? Right. So these are both very important questions. I, 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 so I think there's a, 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 a slight factual predicate issue in your first question, which is that I don't think the administration has generally taken the position that it only targets high-level officials the high-level operatives, uh, that speech was specifically about the targeting of U.S. citizens. Um, and the administration 
has basically said as a general proposition that on the broader issue of non-U.S. nationals, um, which you know constitute the universe of all but one of the people that, right, that, that, that have been affirmatively targeted. Um, their, their basic position has been they reserve the right to target in self-defense, um, but basically they're targeting under the authorization, the congressional authorization to use military force passed in 2001, those who are part of enemy forces. Now, Brennan, in one speech, made clear that they're not targeting everybody they believe to be part of um, enemy forces. They're making, you know, they're, they're sort of not treating it the way you would think of German positions during World War II, right? You know, hey, there's a position there, let's hit it, right? They're, they are thinking about who it is um, they're, they're getting. Uh, and they're trying to get people who have operational value um, and who are um, at a significant level of, of importance. That said, they have, not cons they have not argued that they're legally restricted to that group of people in the way that they have argued that they're potentially legally restricted to that group of people within the category of U.S. nationals. Um, the, um, and so, I, I mean, I think the, rec the way to reconcile those reports with their statements, and I don't actually think they're in particular tension, is they reserve the right to target people who are part of the enemy. They're focused on um, the, the higher level people, but, you know, if they get some lower level people, good. Um, and I, I think that's probably the way they would, if you put them under sodium pentothal, talk about it. Um, as to remind me what your second question was, um, just give me a keyword. The, the two alternative justifications, you know, if that if they're ah, right. right. self-defense, for example. So, so I, I mean, I think by and large, um, the self-defense rationale is there as a legal placeholder. Um, by and large, they would argue, I think, without exception. Um, certainly without exception in the public record, that the people they've targeted are enemy forces under the laws of war um, and enemy forces within the ambit of the specific congressional authorization to use force. Um, they always stick in or self-defense as a, um, as a, you know, almost boilerplate language. And I think the reason is twofold. Uh, first, it started coming in there because it's a historic position of the executive branch. We have the right to use self-defense in, we have the right to use military force in self-defense, both as a domestic constitutional law matter, matter and as a, a Article 51 international law matter. And so whenever you're saying, when do you have the right to, to use military force, you always just throw in that or self-defense language. In the last year or two, it has become more than that. And the, re and the reason is that, you know, the AUMF is atrophying. Um, the, if you read this document, it doesn't seem to describe the world we live in anymore. And the more, the, the further we go from 9-11, the less relevant it becomes. And pretty soon, eventually, whether it's Al-Shabaab or whether it's AQIM or whether it's, you know, Al-Qaeda in, you know, northern 
New South Wales, you know, you, you're going to have some, I'm joking about that, um, <laughs> um, you know, you're going to have some group that, that, that they see as posing an imminent threat, as, target, as lawfully targetable, but not because they're within the AUNF, because they trigger an independent self-defense rationale. Thank you. Uh, Ma'am. Um, yes, Kisha Faulkner from the House of Lords. I'd like to pick up on Anthony Talkin's question and that of Davis, because, and forgive me for having come in late, it's a bit rude to, to intervene when one's missed no, part of the discussion, but I believe I got the gist of what you were saying. And I think a lot of what you said cannot convince for two or three reasons. Nobody disputes that it's, it could be just another weapon of war, like a bomb or anything like that, and that's fine. But as you explained in response to Davis, the oversight mechanisms, what you are describing as oversight is policy oversight. It isn't judicial oversight. Correct. And I think for people like me who have huge problems with the policy, it is the lack of judicial oversight that is deeply worrying. The second point is that when you talk about the CIA assassination policy, COVID assassination policy, while a lot of us may not like it or may even remember Oliver North and and the CIA handbook, you're probably too young to remember that. I remember it. Of course. But, um, well, the thing about that is that at least the CIA was supposedly going out to target or assassinating, or as the lady mentioned in Iran, assassinating individuals. What is extremely worrying about this is the level of collateral damage, as you like to call it, the level of innocent debts that are caused, if, and particularly when you take up Anthony's point about low-level people. So to get one operative, one low-level operative, 75 people can be killed. And the lawlessness implicit in that policy is deeply worrying. And the final point that the Lady McCormick raised about anyone and everyone using them, we know that it's about 71 countries, something like that, roughly, that have them. And I don't know if you're aware of the incident recently in Burma, where the Chinese took out a drug baron by the use of a drone. And, no, no they, did, they didn't. They declined to. Uh, well, they thought about it. They, I thought they did. No, so, no they, they arrested and executed. Yeah, okay, they, they arrested and executed. <laughs> Using well, judicial this processes. Shows, this shows remarkable restraint on the part of the Chinese in that, that they only, and I'm no defender of the Chinese, so you will get the irony in my voice, uh, that they actually bothered to do what the United States cannot do. Which is, which is to arrest a person and then decide what they want to do with them. They have a death penalty. So as far as it's concerned in their country, that was appropriate, as you do. So the analogy you draw with Guantanamo, and it's just like Guantanamo, is not accurate. Because in Guantanamo, as far as we know, you haven't arbitrarily killed off the people you hold there. We assume that the military commissions will go through their work and someone will just be detained indefinitely. But what you're doing here is that you're actually getting some nebulous information about someone in a certain part of the Hindukush mountains and randomly taking out that person and many others. We know in Yemen that the operative who was on your side got assassinated recently when he went to meet people who he was going to get to come over to your side. So not only did you take out the wrong guy and the whole village, but you also you know, made them all turn against you. On that basis, I give you a chance to respond. <laughs> you put a huge amount on the table, um, and let me. Uh, so, I, I think almost everything that that you've put on the table relies on uh, a, an assumption that is contested between the United States and 
and everybody who argues what you argue. And that is the question. So everything that you've said is unthinkable to do in a civilian law enforcement environment and is not quite the norm in lawful warfare targeting, but is basically you're describing at-will targeting in warfare. Now, certainly a strike in which, as you say, you get one low-level guy and kill 75 civilians is not lawful targeting. But I don't believe that's really what's happening. So there is this binary threshold question that a huge amount of where you go with this depends on. And that question is, do you believe there's an armed conflict that justifies targeting? If you don't believe that, I agree with you. You're in kind of a lawless environment here. And, you know, I don't know what to say to somebody who does not accept that premise, except that there's an unbridgeable barrier between those who do and those who don't accept the premise. And a huge amount will flow from that. And I don't, you know, we can sit here and argue all day, no, there isn't, yes, there is, no, there isn't, yes, there is, with respect to a state of armed conflict. But I do think you rightly focus on that. Outside of that, you're talking about extrajudicial killings and lawless assassinations. Inside of that, you're talking about something that's recognizable as targeting. And I think, you know, there's a, I hate to say let's just agree to disagree about that, because actually what hinges on that is whether this is, you know, whether this is a reasonable policy and reasonable program or whether it is, you know, a series of assassinations. So I understand that that's actually not an adequate answer to that question. But, you know, all I can do is acknowledge the difference. As to your point about oversight, you're quite right. Look, the United States has, does not have judicial oversight of overseas military operations. And there are essentially, I think there's exactly no exceptions to that, except the habeas review of detentions at Guantanamo. And that is a very recent thing. And so, you know, if the rest of the world looks at the United States and says, yeah, but there's no judicial oversight of your overseas military operations and you engage in a lot of overseas military operations, the only thing I can say is that's true and that's true. And I suppose that that is a deep critique of our constitutional system, but it is the constitutional system we operate under. And some of us aren't especially apologetic about that. And then... Geneva Conventions come to mind. You do have, there is judicial oversight at some level that the United States signs up to. Actually, the... These are out with the Geneva Conventions. Actually, the Geneva Conventions say nothing about judicial oversight of targeting decisions. No, but they... I mean, it's just not a feature of the regime. I think I'm conscious that we've got less than 10 minutes to go. So can I ask for succinct questions, please? Sir, at the back, and then I'll come to you. David Webster from the Indus Group. In the run-up to the election last year, it was a long New York Times piece 
suggested, very close involvement has been in targeting decisions. So I'm wondering at what level do you think the targeting decisions should be made, and also what consequences do you foresee if it comes to be a very close association between the president and targeting decisions? You know, so this is a fascinating question and about a fascinating story. The Times story describes the president, I think it's the story you're referring to, describes the president as having studied Aquinas and, you know, feeling very deeply that he wants to be the one who is accountable for any, you know, any of these decisions that gets made. Here's the real oversight mechanism that has developed, and I understand that it will not satisfy some of the people in the room, but I think just as a descriptive matter, this is really what's happened. The president, I think, does get very actively involved in certain of these decisions, and more importantly than that, he had in his, I mean, this has changed now, but he essentially gave a veto over a lot of these strikes to Harold Koh, who was the State Department legal advisor, and Koh is as close to, you know, was for many years a major critic of strong overseas counterterrorism operations in the last administration, and I think was a very substantial break internally on a lot of things, and I think the fundamental oversight mechanism that developed, which again is not a judicial oversight mechanism, and it is a legal oversight mechanism, but it's kind of an informal one, is the push and pull between the State Department and the Defense Department and the CIA over, and within this sort of interagency, you can call it the interagency process, or you can call it the interagency slugfest, I mean, it was a very deep set of arguments and battles over the terms under which force would and wouldn't be used that were ultimately resolved by the personal intervention of the president. Query whether, A, that's adequate, and query, B, whether once some of these decisions have been made, they acquire an institutional life of their own, and those same parties don't get involved at that level a second time or a third time, much less a tenth time or a twelfth time. I don't think we know the answers to those questions. The two most aggressive participants in those debates were Harold Koh, as I mentioned, and Joe Johnson, who was the Pentagon general counsel, are both now out of government, and so it'll be very interesting to see whether that atrophies or whether their successors are as engaged in those targeting reviews with ultimately the president kind of breaking ties, which is, I think, the best way to describe what's been happening. Thank you. Over here. Thank you. Sarah Ingham, King's College London. I'm wondering whether all technological advance in connection with warfare doesn't engender similar legal and ethical debate and questions, and whether our views about drones or UAVs isn't generational. If you're under 25, maybe you don't have the same sort of anxiety 
as those with less political disorder. And whether that unease might be assuaged if, um, in the civilian context, drones are used as surveillance mechanisms rather than weapons platforms. I'm thinking, for example, if police forces, say, in Boston or London, were using drones for surveillance for the last week's marathon, and their use becomes normalized, and therefore we become less anxious about them being used so, so this is a, a, another fascinating question. Um, you know, the uh, two things. What, what, one is that you're absolutely right that every, every technological advance that causes the uh, bearer of force to be further remote from the target of force, more lethal and thus more protected at a distance, comes with some uh, disrepute at the moment that it comes. And, I, you know, I was on a panel the other day, and one of my co-panelists read the church's reaction to the advent of the crossbow as a, as a I, I don't remember the exact language, nor do I remember which, which pope it was who you know, denounced this as a, as an, uh, uh, you know, long bows and crossbows as just horrid, uh, undignified weapons. Um, but notably, um, she said, and again, I have no independent knowledge of this history, uh, the Pope only banned their use against other Christians. Um, so um, I, I do think there's a deep point in there. Weapon, the whole history of weapons development is a history in making the bearer more safe and more lethal at, at greater points of safety. And we do tend to develop more comfort level with them than we started. And um, I do think that that's, there's a lot to be said for that in the case of, of, of UASs. Um, I do think your second point, however, at least in the United States, is likely to be wrong. Uh, the United States is, has a very different uh, cultural attitude towards surveillance cameras than Great Britain does. Um, and we have, uh, I'll, I'll just state this as neutrally as I can, there are a lot of people in the United States who think that um, British tolerance for surveillance cameras is um, uh, th this side of, of uh, tolerance of a surveillance state that you know will bring Big Brother tomorrow. And there are um, similarly at the state level in the United States, a lot of state legislatures are moving to. Uh, radically restrict the use of UAVs by law enforcement for precisely that reason. Um, the Boston Marathon incident where British type CT CCTV cameras proved very essential uh, to the quick identification and apprehension of the individuals in question may change that, um, but the American uh, from a um, British point of view, I'm sure pathological distaste for surveillance um, is a very deep-rooted uh, cultural feature of American politics. We're much more comfortable, I think, with armed drones than we are with unarmed <laughs> drones. <laughs> Thank you uh, very much indeed. I'm afraid uh, we have run out of time, but uh, can I thank our speaker uh, this evening, uh, Benjamin Witters, for a fascinating uh, presentation, and um, thank you very much for answering those questions. And can I 
uh, also express my gratitude to, on behalf of the Henry Jackson Society, to everybody who has attended this evening and for your participation in this event. Good night. Listening to the Lawfare Podcast, produced in collaboration with the Brookings Institution. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Get your fall to do list done with a compact utility tractor from Atlantic Tractor. Check out our John Deere 1025R Homestead Package with a loader, mower deck, and tiller for over $3,800 off. Or our John Deere 5055E Giddy Up and Go Package with a loader and pallet forks for $6,900 off. So stop on in one of our locations today. at Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.